Hello Blazers, welcome to episode 19 of UAB Green and Told. Original air date, Monday, May 11th, 2020. UAB Green and Told allows us to share stories from members of the UAB family. I'm Greg Berry, Assistant Director in the UAB Office of Alumni Affairs. Today we're joined by Gary Warner, a 1989 College of Arts and Sciences graduate and UAB's Director of Research in Computer Forensics. Gary works to provide intelligence and analysis for things like cyber crimes, online fraud, and malware. As he'll share, his interest in the cyber world dates back decades. Only recommendation was the librarian said I liked science fiction and there's lots of computers in there. No so kidding. I had the best summer of my life at you know, 1979. Gary will also talk about what his UAB Computer Forensics Research Lab does and who they work with. Um, we had a very large contract to find uh, ways to identify potential terrorists by looking at their posts on social media. And with the current pandemic, he will explain why it's as important as ever to make sure your online information is secure. We've identified just in the last month, there's been over 770 pieces of malware that were being sent out by email that had something to do with COVID-19 in the, in the lure. Gary Warner grew up in an age before computers really took off. As a teenager in the 70s, he was enamored with reading science fiction novels. It was that interest that would blossom into a passion for computers. I was uh, 12 years old, and the superintendent of schools for the county I lived at in Michigan came to the house, and he says, um, hey, I've been talking to the school librarian, and she says that you've read every science fiction book in the library. I said, yeah, that's right. He says, well, aren't there a lot of computers in those? I'm like, yeah. And he says, well, this is a key to my house. And um, I've got six computers still in boxes. And we need to decide what computers to use for the school system in the fall. Would you mind spending the summer just figuring out how they work and deciding what we should buy for the school system? Only recommendation was the librarian said I liked science fiction and there's lots of computers in there. No so kidding. I had the best summer of my life at you know 1979. And uh, honestly, that was always in the back of my head, even as I was doing other things, was I want to find a job where I can get back into computers. So when the career change thing happened in 1985, I, I moved to UAB to study computer science. While you're growing up uh, as a teenager in the 80s, you go to college in the 80s, Computers aren't what we know they are now. I guess in 86 in UAB, they did a little survey about what computers people had at home. And as far as I know, I was the only undergrad in computer science that owned a computer. Really? Um, it was super rare. I mean, most of our homework at that time was actually done by submitting a job to a mainframe that we had access to, which was actually at Southern Company. And then the job would run on the Southern Company mainframe, and then it would send you back the results of the job. And so there, there, were, there were very few computers available to students back then. Um, the internet was still kind of an unknown thing. The World Wide Web didn't come around until 1993, as an example. You know, so um, it, was, it was a different world. What was it like studying computer and information science at UAB in the late 80s? You know, it was, it was really exciting. I mean, because the thing is that the, the faculty and the students all knew that what we were doing was the future. And it, it was really a specialty subset of the culture. You know, we, we knew things that nobody else knew. And we knew that we were betting on the future in a way that nobody understood. 
you know, they like to call us nerds and geeks and things like that. And uh, we're like, yeah, someday we'll own you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it really was, you know, a, a different way of thinking about the problems of the world. Um, we're, we're kind of seeing the same thing today with big data, where people gather billions of something and then run a data analytics algorithm on those billions of things they've collected and they can decide things that are very accurate predictions of how the world works in a way that would have taken the traditional scientific method decades. There's new science within computer science all the time that just, if you have those skills, um, you're gonna change the world. It's scary how much data is out there and how much access there is to all of this data. What kind of control is there for an individual with their own data? Yeah, there, there is no control. Um, even the people that are being as secure as they possibly can don't understand how much connection the various companies have made based on their habits and behaviors. In the, the UK, they have the Global Data Protection uh, Act, you know, uh, GDPR, and requires people to disclose who they're sharing your data with. I did a blog piece recently uh, where we looked at The Guardian, which is a very popular UK newspaper. Okay, there's over 500 companies that they send all your data to. And to get to not have that data sent, you really have to go and file an appeal with each of those 500 companies, each of which has their own privacy agreement, their own terms of service. Well, big data aggregators pull all of that type of data together in a way that can build you a, a biography. They know more about you than your mother. They know every magazine you've ever subscribed to, every cell phone number you've ever had, every address you've ever lived at, every car that you've ever owned or rented, every trip you've ever taken on an airplane, what hotels you stayed in while you were there. And all of that goes together to build a profile of who you are. And the only way to opt out of that would be to go cash only and and live in a tent in the woods. I mean, there, there's if you have a cell phone, if you have a bank account, if you have a credit card, your privacy is already violated in ways that you couldn't begin to understand. And let's be honest, most people aren't going to go to Idaho, Washington, wherever, and just live off the land in the middle of nowhere. How do I feel safe? As I'm sure you know, I, I've left computer science uh, several years back and I've moved to the criminal justice program. And so I run a unit at UAB called the Computer Forensics Research Lab. And what our lab does is works on online safety and online security issues. Many times these are related to stopping fraud or helping to reduce fraud anyway. Um, and sometimes finding very unique patterns of fraud as we study the things that criminals say, we learn about patterns that we share with our commercial and government partners that help us to understand the types of crime that are about to happen to people. And so that, that would be more my focus was not so much about protecting your privacy, but protecting access to your money. <laughs> and, yeah. and how do I protect you from a cyber criminal taking all the money out of your bank account? That's a different thing than how do I protect you from having your privacy exposed. For me, privacy is done. The, the horse is out of the barn. There's no way to reverse that. Um, but there's still things that you can do even in that space to 
reduce the likelihood of someone coming after you from a privacy perspective. So what are some of those things that you can do to make sure that you keep your things yours and not out in the open? Yeah, so I think one of those things is that we really need people to understand how they authenticate to systems and what the criminals are able to do with that now. So by authenticate to systems, you Google today that you want some new tennis shoes and you find a website and it says, oh, you need to create an account to buy our tennis shoes. And you put in your email address and the same password you've used for the last 30 things because you consider that shoe selling website a throwaway password. I may never buy shoes here again. I don't want to keep track of 3,000 passwords, so I'm just going to give them my standard password. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem is that that shoe selling site is probably going to have a data breach someday. Everyone has had a data breach. Google has had data breaches. Uh, Yahoo, LinkedIn, Facebook has had data breaches. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of these data breaches, and they're more likely by far on smaller business sites, smaller e-commerce sites, but even very large organizations are using software on their websites that allows a criminal who understands the flaws in that software to dump all of the customer data. You know, things like major airlines have fallen victim to a a set of attacks called MageCart. There's a very popular website for doing online checkouts. And and one of, rather than building my own credit card processing system and order handling system, I download Magento is the name of the the cart. Well, Magento is used by, I don't know, I would guess maybe 20% of all the websites on the planet. And when someone finds a new security bug on that platform, that means they can dump all the credit, all the data off of that site. And this happens over and over and over again. It just, it's like an arms race. And major websites have been breached because they were using this shopping cart that had a vulnerability. If I've given my password to that site, the criminals acquire that password. Now they don't actually try to guess my password. They just take the password from a previous data breach and play that password against all of the websites that they think I might have an account at. So if if your tennis shoe order ended up giving up your user ID and password, the criminals quickly scan and say, is that the same password he uses at Netflix, at Hulu, at Amazon, at Bank of America, at Wells Fargo, at, you know, at Zappos? What are all of the places where that user ID and password work? And if they have a working place, now they have your access to your credentials. Some of those places can be financially harmful to you in ways, some silly ways, like I get free Netflix because I'm logging in on your account. Does that really harm you? Eh, Maybe, maybe not. But what if I can take everything you've ordered at Amazon, claim that it was not delivered and get a refund for that? Now they're stealing money from Amazon, but they're using your account to do it. Well, what if they take over your Facebook account or your Twitter account or your LinkedIn account and now they're able to reach into your friend network and the trust that your friends gave to you because they know you on Facebook or LinkedIn, they're now giving to a criminal who's assumed your identity. And now we always say, don't click on links, right? That's ridiculous. How many times has UAB sent you a link that told you to click on it? It, it, It's the way business is done. So what do we do instead? How most people do it is they say, I'll go ahead and click on that because Greg Berry is my friend and I know he wouldn't send me something bad. 
But if I've just lost my Facebook account because my password at the shoe site works on Facebook, now that link they just got from Greg Berry isn't Greg Berry at all. It's a criminal taking advantage of the trust that we've associated with our friend. So all of that can be fixed just by not reusing passwords. You have to have a unique password on every site and there's password management software that'll help you do that. But the average person doesn't understand that very complex scenario and so they get ripped off. If you have a different password for every site that you go to, how often should you be circulating and changing those passwords for those individual sites? I, you don't need to. Okay. Unless the password is stolen or you have reason to believe the password has been stolen, there's really no reason to do that. Um, the other danger point that happens is if you have all those passwords and you say, save them, you know how Chrome, your Chrome browser says, would you like me to remember that password for you? Right, if you do, and then you get infected with malware, the first thing the malware is gonna do is dump all of your passwords out of Chrome. And now you've lost every password. Yep. Um, and so there, there are a lot of, I don't save any passwords to my browser. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, but the, that's a very different way of looking at the problem that other than is my privacy at risk. Well, in that case, we've almost given the criminals a easy way to get at all of our other data by choosing to reuse passwords. That's a yeah. behavioral situation that by informing people about that poor behavior choice, we can help protect them. And that's part of what we do is we look for opportunities to educate the public like like that. We help the bad guys out. We help them get our information in essence. Yeah. Yeah. So what does you and your team at the UAB Computer Forensics Research Lab do besides just the education? We say that we're providing training tools and techniques. Okay. And so we teach people, you know, all of the people working on my lab are actually UAB students. Um, it's a student-based organization that we say it's, we're providing experiential-based learning. So I can teach you in the classroom certain theories about how to fight cybercrime, but if I give put you on a contract where you know, Bank of America is your customer and you're fighting crime on behalf of Bank of America, you learn in a very different way by interacting on a daily basis with our clients and partners. So a lot of our students worked for a project for DHS um, we had a very large contract to find uh, ways to identify potential terrorists by looking at their posts on social media. Well, there's a lot of things that some people will end up going more in a military intelligence style direction. So we do a lot of counterterrorism work, but we also do a lot of cybercrime work for financial institutions and large online retailers. And a lot of that work is looking at where do the criminals talk about this topic, whether that topic is terrorism in Indonesia, or whether that topic is how to steal people's bank account information, or whether that topic is how do I do sex trafficking. In each of those areas, there are places online where criminals openly communicate about that topic. Our objective is to find those places, understand what is the topic of the conversation, and what could we learn by watching what the criminals are saying that will help the people we serve to make better decisions on how to protect their companies, or their clients' money, or, or the country. Because in this day and age, they're basically using the same tools we are. They're just mm -hmm. utilizing a little bit differently. Right, uh, so one of the exciting things that people don't think of as computer forensics 
Um, we're actually doing a lot of work uh, around the opioid epidemic. The third floor of the building I'm in is the wet labs and the drug labs and the they do DNA analysis and all the forensic science that you would see on CSI or something like that. We can do all of that at UAB. One floor up is where we have the computer forensics. And Dr. Gardner, Beth Gardner, is the uh, head of our, our forensic sciences program, but she's also a forensic drug chemist herself. And so she looks at drug use from a perspective of what are the changes in chemistry that are, are changing the things that people use to get high and get addicted to. Well, a lot of, of what we've been doing recently is her students who are trained chemists come up and work with my students who are trained in digital investigations and we try to find the places where people are communicating about the sale of online drugs, whether it's, you know, in the old days we were doing things about counterfeit Viagra and Cialis, you know, uh -huh. was the big thing. Everybody was getting spam about Viagra. Well, Dr. Gardner have actually worked on multiple contracts for the government and grants for the government in that area, serving the Food and Drug Administration, the DEA, Homeland Security Investigations. We've done a lot of work in tracking how do criminals build in build the web infrastructure to sell illegal drugs to Americans. Well, most recently, we've also been looking then at where would we go to learn what are people seeking? So as a combination of where are the, where is the supply coming from? We have a fentanyl epidemic. Okay, where does the drugs come from? Well, a lot of it's coming from in raw chemical form from China, sometimes in the form of precursors. It's being turned into a consumable fentanyl in drug labs that are being run by the cartels down in Mexico and then coming across the border to the US. Well, what would that look like at each step of the way? Mm -hmm. How would we identify a major drug precursor builder in China? How would we recognize what Americans or Mexican organizations are buying those drugs? And then how are they being turned into consumables and how are those being distributed? And so we're able to use a lot of the techniques that we've developed for cybercrime to look at how can we reduce uh, the likelihood that people are going to easily encounter an addictive substance online and buy it. You know, the current project is called What You Can't Buy Can't Kill You. And, and it's about identifying the infrastructure that's being used by these drug dealers to sell drugs on the internet. And how do we reduce that, whether it makes it harder for you to find it in a search engine, whether it makes it harder for you to find it on Facebook, or whether it makes it so that the companies who are hosting these websites will no longer provide services to people who are selling drugs. So who are you working with when you're doing all of this to make sure that the research that you're finding to possibly prevent that from showing up in a search browser doesn't happen? Well, so for example, we're working with some of the major search engines themselves in that area. Okay. Um, where we've, I, I can't name names, but we've, we've been working with some of the search engines uh, we've been working with major web hosting companies. Um, we've been working with the uh, credit card companies. One way to, one form of infrastructure is if you go to that website and you want to buy the drug, can you use your MasterCard or Visa card to do that? Or your Discover card or your Amex card? Well, what if that was no longer a possible way to buy? What if, what if when you tried to buy on those websites, they said, oh, we don't accept MasterCard or Visa, try again. Well, that's one of the infrastructures that support the online drug economy is the credit card companies. So getting rid of those, now you have to go figure out how Bitcoin works if you want to buy drugs. That's a technical hurdle still at this point. A lot of people 
uh, if they can't use a credit card, they're not going to buy online. So, you know, it, it's one of the one of the techniques we're using. Should people now with the current pandemic, COVID-19, be more worried about their security online than ever before? There's a lot going on. Um, I'm part of a, a COVID security task force that's got 1,500 researchers in it. And um, we've identified just in the last month, there've been over 770 pieces of malware that were being sent out by email that had something to do with COVID-19 in the, in the lure. And some of those are getting through. If you're at UAB, we have the fish me reporter button. Mm -hmm. I reported a fish yesterday that got through. I mean, it was in my inbox and I was told that it was delivered to over 3,800 people. Well, that was a threat that is targeting work at home people in this particular case. And if you had logged in on that site, you would have given up your Blazor user ID and password. The point is not that there are more threats, it's that everybody's using COVID to deliver the same threats. People make bad decisions about cybersecurity when they're in a stressful situation. Okay, everybody's stress level is high. Yeah. And when, when we're in a stressful situation, we tend not to evaluate things as thoroughly as we would when we're in a relaxed situation. And so there's, there's just the level of stress that's going on is part of why we're making bad decisions, which end up giving the criminals our credentials. The other thing that's going on though, is that um, the two major lures for phishing have always been fear and greed. I think I'm gonna make money, so I do something stupid because I just need the money. And then the other side is, I think I'm in danger, and so I do something stupid. A greed response or a fear response, either one of those can cause you to make bad decisions. In the old days, we would, the banking criminals would evoke a fear response by doing something like, hi, Greg, we noticed that your ATM card was used in Romania today and just wanted to make sure that was you. If you're not traveling in Bucharest right now, please click below to let us know. Okay, well, you have a fear response. Oh no, somebody's about to steal all my money and you click. And you don't think about, I wonder if that's real because you're having a fear response. Well, a lot of these lures today are things about protect your family from coronavirus, you know, or hey, we have N95 masks available. Everyone else is out of stock, but you can buy your mask from us. And the thing you click might take you to a page that asks you for your user ID and password for your email. It makes it look like you've been logged out of your email for some reason and you have to log back in to get the message. In the same way, on the greed side, there are a lot of opportunities related to making money off Corona that people are also falling for. And, and it's not just making money like a get-rich-quick scheme. How many tens of millions of people don't have a job right now? And so because... Yep. Normally, I would go, you know, I don't know if that really can make me, I, I don't know that it sounds legitimate that I can make $700 a day uh, by posting messages on Facebook, but I'm unemployed and it says it's only $80 to take the class on learning how to do it. I'm going to do that. And then the criminals take your credit card and then they start charging you for things that they haven't disclosed to you and you're screwed. Normally, you would never have responded to that ad but you're trying to figure out how to buy groceries right now because you're unemployed because of Corona. And those are the two main ways that people are, that cybersecurity has been impacted by Corona. It's more the fear and the greed. Well, there's always gonna be a next big thing too. And that kind of gives you a future because you're always gonna be working on things to get that next big, big thing and reduce the use. 
Right. And that's that's part of it is that as we're monitoring, whether it's terror, drugs, cybercrime, we're in the communities where the criminals communicate with each other. If all of a sudden they're all talking about a new technique for stealing money or for breaking into a certain type of database, we want to be in the room when they're having that conversation and then be able to route that to an appropriate partner to try to do something about that. You've worked with the FBI, the Facebook, um, and you've helped solve large cyber crimes. That has to be kind of gratifying to do the work that you do and to be able to help national organization like the FBI and then a large corporation like Facebook determine things. So when I look at what have we accomplished at UAB, the main thing I look at is I've had over 300 students work in the lab and they're now out working for government agencies and corporations protecting in the same way that we do. And so that, you know, I think my favorite highlight is when I go to an international law enforcement conference to teach on cybercrime and my former students are also there at that conference teaching. You know, so like people like Tommy Blizzard is at Microsoft. You know, he was in our lab, in the Mauer lab years and years ago, but he's a major player at Microsoft now in, in online safety. Uh, he used to co-manage the uh, Malware Protection Center. They call it the MMPC, Microsoft Malware Protection Center. He was a major part of that organization. And I would see him at conferences speaking as Microsoft about how to fight malware. Um, or, Brad, or Brad Wardman. I mean, Brad is now the director of intelligence at PayPal. You know, PayPal clears a very large portion of all the online payments in the world. Uh, they own a lot of companies that people don't know are PayPal as well, but something like 30% of all online transactions, it may be a lot more than that, I'm not sure, um, are cleared every day by PayPal. Well, their head of intelligence got his PhD at UAB. That, that's what gets me really excited is when, when we see the impact that our graduates are making out in the world working for these major corporations. With all of your expertise and experience in the private sector, why did you decide to come back to UAB? I was working as a task force officer for the FBI as a side job. My main job, I was the IT director at Energen. And honestly, you know, I mean, I know we, we're a capitalist com- country and, you know, we, we all believe in making a dollar, but I realized that my, my main job was protecting the shareholder value of Energen people. Okay, they paid me very well for that. but. As I was working with the FBI, what I kept realizing was there are a lot of agents sending cases to our lab in Birmingham because they didn't understand how to do it because there was no program for training people in how to do cybercrime analysis. We weren't aware of a single university program anywhere in the country that was really focused on cybercrime investigations. I told my boss at the FBI and I told my boss at Energen, I was like, I'm gonna go somewhere where I can train my own FBI agents. We made the pitch to Carol Garrison. She was the president of the university at that time. And the FBI special agent in charge and the US Secret Service special agent in charge came to the meeting, um, the, the ones in charge of the Birmingham field offices and said, we badly need this. And you know, for me, I, when, I, when I told my boss at Energen I was leaving, I said, I'm going to go to a university and make my own FBI agents. They need to be trained in cybercrime investigations. And I'd been doing that with the FBI for several years now. And as a computer scientist, I understood what needed to happen, but I didn't have a place to make it happen. And so I, I came to UAB because that's where I graduated from. And we formed a partnership. Um, originally we called it the 
CSJS working group. You know, it was the Justice Science Computer Science Working Group. And what we used as our original tagline was, we solve criminal justice problems with computer science solutions. And that was kind of what we started with, was a lot of this data analytics really needs to have a computer science informed approach, but you also have to understand the law. And that's the thing is there were places that were training people in how to do cybersecurity, but they didn't know the law. And so their solutions were often not able to be deployed because they violated the law. Um, but having that partnership where we know the law and we know the technology allowed us to do some really interesting things. Do you deal with a lot of social media security right now? Yeah, yeah, we, we do. Almost a third of the lab actually works for social media companies. Um, Facebook is one of the clients. There's a lot of, that we're doing there with um, consumer protection. Um, so everything from you shouldn't be able to buy a gun from a stranger on Facebook to you really shouldn't encourage, be able to be part of a group that encourages people to commit suicide. There's all sorts of types of threats that can harm people who are using social media. And part of the lab does work to identify those. But again, it's a computer science-based combination. We yeah. find the bad content and we recognize what are we, how can we train a machine to find similar bad content? And so uh, there's a thing Facebook puts out every year, it's called the transparency report that shares how many thing, bad things got removed from the platform in the areas of terrorism and, and uh, fraud and you know, uh, child pornography and lots of other things. And uh, what we're looking for is how many of the things that got removed were detected automatically and removed without human intervention. So at the beginning, a very large amount of the things that people will report to Facebook by clicking the report button, this is bad, please take it off, that works. But what works better is if you have trusted reporters like who are in my lab, building kind of the gold standard, like if it says these things, you should be able to automatically remove it from your platform. And so a lot of what we're doing is working with the machine learning people at Facebook, take the data that UAB creates and then apply that to automatically remove harmful content that could pose a danger of various sorts from to their users. And that's Gary Warner. In 1989, he graduated with a bachelor's degree in computer and information science from the College of Arts and Sciences. He returned to UAB in 2007 and started teaching criminal justice and computer science classes. Currently, he works with students as part of UAB's Computer Forensics Research Lab. As a part of the UAB family for more than three decades, Gary has a good idea of what it means to be a blazer. Well, I mean, for me, it's... it's pride that we're contributing to the good of society. There's a lot of accomplishments that have been made at UAB that I own that. When Sarah Parkett is on National Geographic or when Jim McClintock is, you know, featured on, on you know, a major news uh, program talking about his studies in Antarctica, I feel a sense of ownership in that. And I hope that people, when they hear about what my lab is doing to help fight cybercrime or help with the drug epidemic, I hope that people that are also UAB Blazers go, that's my school. My school's doing that. 
it's that sense of ownership that all the good things that UAB does, I'm part of that. Take UAB Green and Told with you wherever you go. Listen in at alumni.uab.edu slash greenandtold or subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. While you're there, leave us a written review. This will help other Blazers find the podcast. Have an idea for a future guest? Email me at greenandtold at uab.edu. And stay up to speed with everything we do on social media. We can be found at UAB Alumni on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. And until next time, go Blazers.